We continue with the opinion of the court in Sackett v. EPA, beginning with Part 3 of the opinion. Part 3. With this history in mind, we now consider the extent of the CWA's geographical reach. Section A. We start, as we always do, with the text of the CWA. As noted, the Act applies to navigable waters, which had a well-established meaning at the time of the CWA's enactment. But the CWA complicates matters by proceeding to define navigable waters as the waters of the United States, which was decidedly not a well-known term of art. This frustrating drafting choice has led to decades of litigation, but we must try to make sense of the terms Congress chose to adopt. And for the reasons explained below, we conclude that the Rapanos plurality was correct. The CWA's use of waters encompasses only those relatively permanent, standing, or continuously flowing bodies of water forming geographical features that are described in ordinary parlance as streams, oceans, rivers, and lakes. This reading follows from the CWA's deliberate use of the plural term waters. That term typically refers to bodies of water like those listed above. This meaning is hard to reconcile with classifying lands, wet or otherwise, as waters. This reading also helps to align the meaning of the waters of the United States with the term it is defining, navigable waters. Although we've acknowledged that the CWA extends to more than traditional navigable waters, we have refused to read navigable out of the statute, holding that it at least shows that Congress was focused on its traditional jurisdiction over waters that were or had been navigable, in fact, or which could reasonably be so made. At a minimum, then, the use of navigable signals that the definition principally refers to bodies of navigable water, like rivers, lakes, and oceans. More broadly, this reading accords with how Congress has employed the term waters elsewhere in the CWA and in other laws. The CWA repeatedly uses waters in contexts that confirm the term refers to bodies of open water. The use of waters elsewhere in the U.S. Code likewise correlates to rivers, lakes, and oceans. Statutory history points in the same direction. The CWA's predecessor statute covered interstate or navigable waters and defined interstate waters as all rivers, lakes, and other waters that flow across or form a part of state boundaries. This court has understood the CWA's use of waters in the same way. Even as Riverside Bayview grappled with whether adjacent wetlands could fall within the CWA's coverage, it acknowledged that wetlands are not included in traditional notions of waters. It explained that the term conventionally refers to hydrographic features like rivers and streams. SWANCC went even further, repeatedly describing the waters covered by the Act 
as open water and suggesting that the waters of the United States principally refers to traditional navigable waters. That our CWA decisions operated under this assumption is unsurprising. Ever since Gibbons v. Ogden, this court has used waters of the United States to refer to similar bodies of water, almost always in relation to ships. The EPA argues that waters is naturally read to encompass wetlands because the presence of water is universally regarded as the most basic feature of wetlands. But that reading proves too much. Consider puddles, which are also defined by the ordinary presence of water, even though few would describe them as waters. This argument is also tough to square with SWANCC, which held that the act does not cover isolated ponds. Or Riverside Bayview, which would have had no need to focus so extensively on the adjacency of wetlands to covered waters, if the EPA's reading were correct. Finally, it is also instructive that the CWA expressly protects the primary responsibilities and rights of states to prevent, reduce, and eliminate pollution, and to plan the development and use of land and water resources. It is hard to see how the state's role in regulating water resources would remain primary if the EPA had jurisdiction over anything defined by the presence of water. Section B. Although the ordinary meaning of waters in Section 1362, Clause 7 might seem to exclude all wetlands, we do not view that provision in isolation. The meaning of a word may only become evident when placed in context, and statutory context shows that some wetlands qualify as waters of the United States. In 1977, Congress amended the CWA and added Section 1344G1, which authorizes states to apply to the EPA for permission to administer programs to issue permits for the discharge of dredged or fill material into some bodies of water. In simplified terms, the provision specifies that state permitting programs may regulate discharges into 1. any waters of the United States, 2. except for traditional navigable waters, 3. including wetlands adjacent thereto. When this convoluted formulation is parsed, it tells us that at least some wetlands must qualify as waters of the United States. The provision begins with a broad category, the waters of the United States, which we may call Category A. The provision provides that states may permit discharges into these waters, but it then qualifies that states cannot permit discharges into a subcategory of A, traditional navigable waters category B. Finally, it states that a third category, category C, consisting of wetlands adjacent to traditional navigable waters, is included within B. Thus, states may permit discharges into A minus B, which includes C. If C, 
adjacent wetlands were not part of A, the waters of the United States, and therefore subject to regulation under the CWA, there would be no point in excluding them from that category. Thus, Section 1344G1 presumes that certain wetlands constitute waters of the United States. But what wetlands does the CWA regulate? Section 1344G1 cannot answer that question alone because it is not the operative provision that defines the Act's reach. Instead, we must harmonize the reference to adjacent wetlands in Section 1344G1 with the Waters of the United States, Section 13627, which is the actual term we are tasked with interpreting. The formulation discussed above tells us how. Because the adjacent wetlands in Section 1344G1 are included within the waters of the United States, these wetlands must qualify as waters of the United States in their own right. In other words, they must be indistinguishably part of a body of water that itself constitutes waters under the CWA. This understanding is consistent with Section 1344G1's use of adjacent. Dictionaries tell us that the term adjacent may mean either contiguous or near. But construing statutory language is not merely an exercise in ascertaining the outer limits of a word's definitional possibilities, and here only one meaning produces a substantive effect that is compatible with the rest of the law. Wetlands that are separate from traditional navigable waters cannot be considered part of those waters, even if they are located nearby. In addition, it would be odd indeed if Congress had tucked an important expansion to the reach of the CWA into convoluted language in a relatively obscure provision concerning state permitting programs. We have often remarked that Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes by altering the fundamental details of a regulatory scheme in vague terms or ancillary provisions. We cannot agree with such an implausible interpretation here. If Section 1344G1 were read to mean that the CWA applies to wetlands that are not indistinguishably part of otherwise covered waters of the United States, it would effectively amend and substantially broaden Section 1362 Clause 7 to define navigable waters as waters of the United States and adjacent wetlands. But Section 1344G1's use of the term including, makes clear that it does not purport to do, and in fact does not do, any such thing. It merely reflects Congress's assumption that certain adjacent wetlands are part of waters of the United States. This is the thrust of observations and decisions going all the way back to Riverside Bayview. In that case, we defer to the Corps' decision to regulate wetlands actually abutting a navigable waterway, but we recognized the inherent difficulties of defining precise bounds to regulable waters. In such a situation, we concluded, 
the Corps could reasonably determine that wetlands adjoining bodies of water were part of those waters. In Rapanos, the plurality spelled out clearly when adjacent wetlands are part of covered waters. It explained that waters may fairly be read to include only those wetlands that are, as a practical matter, indistinguishable from waters of the United States, such that it is difficult to determine where the water ends and the wetland begins. That occurs when wetlands have a continuous surface connection to bodies that are waters of the United States in their own right, so that there is no clear demarcation between waters and wetlands. We agree with this formulation of when wetlands are part of the waters of the United States. We also acknowledge that temporary interruptions in surface connection may sometimes occur because of phenomena like low tides or dry spells. In sum, we hold that the CWA extends to only those wetlands that are, as a practical matter, indistinguishable from waters of the United States. This requires the party asserting jurisdiction over adjacent wetlands to establish first that the adjacent body of water constitutes waters of the United States, and second, that the wetland has a continuous surface connection with that water making it difficult to determine where the water ends and the wetland begins. Part 4 The EPA resists this reading of Section 1362, Clause 7, and instead asks us to defer to its understanding of the CWA's jurisdictional reach, as set out in its most recent rule defining the waters of the United States. This rule, as noted, provides that adjacent wetlands are covered by the Act if they possess a significant nexus to traditional navigable waters. And according to the EPA, wetlands are adjacent when they are neighboring to covered waters, even if they are separated from those waters by dry land. Section A for reasons already explained, this interpretation is inconsistent with the text and structure of the CWA. Beyond that, it clashes with background principles of construction that apply to the interpretation of the relevant statutory provisions. Under those presumptions, the EPA must provide clear evidence that it is authorized to regulate in the manner it proposes. One. First, this court requires Congress to enact exceedingly clear language if it wishes to significantly alter the balance between federal and state power and the power of the government over private property. Regulation of land and water use lies at the core of traditional state authority. An overly broad interpretation of the CWA's reach would impinge on this authority. The area covered by wetlands alone is vast, greater than the combined surface area of California and Texas, and the scope of the EPA's conception of the waters of the United States is truly staggering when this vast territory is supplemented by all the additional area, some of which is generally dry, over which the agency asserts jurisdiction particularly given the CWA's express policy 
to preserve the state's primary authority over land and water use. This court has required a clear statement from Congress when determining the scope of the waters of the United States. The EPA, however, offers only a passing attempt to square its interpretation with the text of Section 1362, Clause 7, and its significant nexus theory is particularly implausible. It suggests that the meaning of the waters of the United States is so broad and unqualified that if viewed in isolation, it would extend to all water in the United States. The EPA thus turns to the significant nexus test in order to reduce the clash between its understanding of the waters of the United States and the term defined by that phrase, i.e., navigable waters. As discussed, however, the meaning of waters is more limited than the EPA believes, and in any event, the CWA never mentions the significant nexus test, so the EPA has no statutory basis to impose it. 2. Second, the EPA's interpretation gives rise to serious vagueness concerns in light of the CWA's criminal penalties. Due process requires Congress to define penal statutes with sufficient definiteness that ordinary people can understand what conduct is prohibited, and in a manner that does not encourage arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Yet the meaning of waters of the United States under the EPA's interpretation remains hopelessly indeterminate. The EPA contends that the only thing preventing it from interpreting waters of the United States to conceivably cover literally every body of water in the country is the significant nexus test. But the boundary between a significant and an insignificant nexus is far from clear, and to add to the uncertainty, the test introduces another vague concept— similarly situated waters, and then assesses the aggregate effect of that group based on a variety of open-ended factors that evolve as scientific understandings change. This freewheeling inquiry provides little notice to landowners of their obligations under the CWA. Facing severe criminal sanctions for even negligent violations, property owners are left to feel their way on a case-by-case basis. Where a penal statute could sweep so broadly as to render criminal a host of what might otherwise be considered ordinary activities, we have been wary about going beyond what Congress certainly intended the statute to cover. Under these two background principles, the judicial task when interpreting the waters of the United States is to ascertain whether clear congressional authorization exists for the EPA's claimed power. The EPA's interpretation falls far short of that standard. Section B. While mustering only a weak textual argument, the EPA justifies its position on two other grounds. It primarily claims that Congress implicitly ratified its interpretation of adjacent wetlands when it adopted Section 1344G1. Thus, it argues that waters of the United States 
covers any wetlands that are bordering, contiguous, or neighboring to covered waters. The principal opinion concurring in the judgment adopts the same position. The EPA notes that the Corps had promulgated regulations adopting that interpretation before Congress amended the CWA in 1977 to include the reference to adjacent wetlands in Section 1344G1. This term, the EPA contends, was obviously transplanted from the Corps' regulations and thus incorporates the same definition. This argument fails for at least three reasons. First, as we have explained, the text of sections 1362, 7, and 1344, G1 shows that adjacent cannot include wetlands that are not part of covered waters. Second, this ratification theory cannot be reconciled with our cases. We have repeatedly recognized that Section 1344G1 does not conclusively determine the construction to be placed on the relevant definition of navigable waters. Additionally, SWANCC rejected the closely analogous argument that Congress ratified the Corps' definition of waters of the United States by including other waters in Section 1344G1. And yet the EPA's argument would require us to hold that Section 1344G1 actually did amend the definition of navigable waters precisely for the reasons we rejected in SWANCC. Third, the EPA cannot provide the sort of overwhelming evidence of acquiescence necessary to support its argument in the face of Congress's failure to amend Section 1362-7. We will infer that a term was transplanted from another legal source only when a term's meaning was well settled before the transplantation. Far from being well settled, the Corps' definition was promulgated mere months before the CWA became law, and when the Corps adopted that definition, it candidly acknowledged the rapidly changing nature of its regulatory programs. Tellingly, even the EPA would not adopt that definition for several more years. This situation is a far cry from any in which we have found ratification. The EPA also advances various policy arguments about the ecological consequences of a narrower definition of adjacent. But the CWA does not define the EPA's jurisdiction based on ecological importance, and we cannot redraw the Act's allocation of authority. The Clean Water Act anticipates a partnership between the states and the federal government. States can and will continue to exercise their primary authority to combat water pollution by regulating land and water use. Part 5 Nothing in the separate opinions filed by Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Kagan undermines our analysis. Justice Kavanaugh claims we have rewritten the CWA, and Justice Kagan levels similar charges. These arguments are more than unfounded. We have analyzed the statutory language in detail, 
but the separate opinions pay no attention whatsoever to Section 1362, Clause 7, the key statutory provision that limits the CWA's geographic reach to the waters of the United States. Thus, neither separate opinion even attempts to explain how the wetlands included in their interpretation fall within a fair reading of waters. Textualist arguments that ignore the operative text cannot be taken seriously. Part 6 In sum, we hold that the CWA extends to only those wetlands with a continuous surface connection to bodies that are waters of the United States in their own right, so that they are indistinguishable from those waters. This holding compels reversal here. The wetlands on the Sackett's property are distinguishable from any possibly covered waters. We reverse the judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.